So as we have been for the last several months, we're going from cover to cover of the Bible, and we have hit the good part. Uh, We're entering into what is realistically one of the best uh, pieces of ancient literature, period. The David Saga. Um, It is amazingly rich and complex and intricate and multifaceted, and it is just leaps and bounds above anything else from its time period. Um, And it's wonderful stuff. Um, If you haven't read through the whole thing, I would encourage you, perhaps, uh, take a couple hours, read through the whole thing. It's amazing. Um, So really, one of the main things we'll be focusing on the next couple weeks is trying to wrap our heads around these stories in all of their complexity, to see how rich they are, and then seeing what ideas emerge from them. And so this week, we kick it off with one of the most tragic characters in the Bible, Saul. So, remember where we left off, the book of Judges. When the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, they didn't actually kill all the indigenous peoples because they had to fight them off for hundreds of years. Then, at the end of the book, we see the nation disintegrate into turmoil. There's a civil war with the, gang, uh, with the tribes ganging up on one another and slaughtering each other. It's a bloodbath and melee. It's collapsed into chaos. All this fun, light stuff that we love. And so what we ended talking about last week was politics, was forms of government, how we arrange ourselves as societies. And this discussion... The political setup is the key to connecting last week to this week, the politics of the nation. So remember what Israelite society was like before. Um, Before this, in the period of judges, you had tribes. So basically, uh, extended family groups doing their own thing. uh, And then when a military threat came up, Everybody banded together and fought them up, and God raised up a judge. And then the threat was done, and they disbanded back to their own families and doing their own thing. It was situational. It was basically only responding to crises. There was no real government, per se. But this model of society was unsustainable. We saw that as it devolved into civil war. But the Israelites looked around and say, you know, our neighbors are trying this hip new thing called a monarchy, and then they've got this thing called a king, and it looks pretty cool, so we want to do that. And this is where we enter in our story from last week. So we start off with a dude named Samuel. Uh, From an early age, he was called by God to be a prophet, a kind of messenger, a communication between God and humans. Well, the Israelites come to Samuel and tell him, give us a king. We want a king, the passage we heard today. Now, Samuel is not a big fan, which is a massive understatement, because he's convinced that monarchy is equivalent to idolatry. Monarchy equals idolatry. So our question is, why does he care, and how does he get to this point, right? Why is he bringing God into this question of politics in the first place? So for all the considerable downsides that we talked about of the 
system of judges as a way to structure a nation, the people directly relied upon God to raise up a judge. But now with monarchs, you have dynasties and successions, you no longer rely on God for everything. You rely on your king and on the monarchy. Uh, Before, God was your king. Now, you have a human king. And so Samuel says, monarchy is equivalent to idolatry because it takes people away from depending on God. And then Samuel makes the second point, uh, which we'll touch base with more in a couple weeks when we talk about Solomon. But Samuel warns the people, when you get a centralized government, you have to fund it. And it, in the very best scenario, it'll be a financial burden. But Samuel also warns them that this monarchy will inherently lead to exploitation. The king will inevitably oppress the peoples and, keep tabs on this one for later, will press people into forced labor. So Samuel has a pretty negative view of the monarchy, I would say. Um, But also, and track with me here, uh, he's not a neutral party. Uh, He's got a pretty significant stake in this question. So, because when there's no centralized government, who's got the power? God. And who speaks for God? The prophets. And who's a prophet? Samuel. So, when there's now a king calling the shots, he's out of power. Samuel goes from being top dog to being sidelined to losing all of his power. So we have to keep in mind that Samuel's position that he ascribes to God is basically self-interested as well. But this shouldn't be surprising because Samuel is a complex, uh, dynamic, multifaceted, rich character. He's uh, called by God and impossible to please, and self-interested, and clutching to his power, and proud, and arrogant, and disdainful, and really, really melodramatic. And we find this, this complexity in all three of the characters that we're looking at today in our stories. They're not simple. They're not flat stock characters. They're not all good and bad. They're good characters. So let's continue to who I think is the most tragic person in the Bible. So God tells Samuel, suck it up and give him a king. So Samuel goes out and finds the biggest, tallest, strongest, most ruggedly handsome man he can find and pops a crown on him, and that man's name is Saul. But Saul doesn't want the gig. He resists and demurs, But finally, when Samuel won't give up, Saul finally relents and is crowned king. But, just to add in some narrative intrigue, it doesn't take too long before Saul loses Samuel's favor, and according to the narrator, God's as well. Because Saul leads a sacrifice himself before heading into battle. And remember that Samuel's super arrogant. I'm the only one who can do sacrifices, so God has now abandoned you. 
pretty sweet. Um, he has some anger issues, perhaps. So, so Samuel goes out behind Saul's back to find a replacement king. And, of course, he finds David. Now, Saul doesn't actually know about this. He actually doesn't learn that David was chosen uh, until he dies. I mean, he never learns. Uh, He's in the dark the whole time. But even so, David and Saul begin to get intertwined. Y'all know the story of David and Goliath, yes? Uh, This is one of two different stories of how David and Saul uh, meet and start coming together. The other one is uh, David was called in to be a court musician to help soothe Saul's temper uh, because, see, Saul had been going downhill. He'd been going downhill. He's been more and more tormented ever since Samuel revoked God's blessing from him. And he's been torn and tormented and restless. And so, in a bit of dramatic irony, David, the one who will eventually seize the throne from Saul, comforts Saul about him maybe losing his throne. But Saul keeps going downhill, keeps getting worse and worse. He gets unhinged, vacillating between terrible fits of rage and deep remorse for that behavior. And frequently he lashes out at David, who just faithfully sticks with him. Until one day when uh, David's life is in danger and he has to flee. And Saul tries to track him down in this massive countrywide game of cat and mouse. And throughout this whole debacle, they're still deeply intertwined with one another. David is a beloved member of Saul's court when Saul's not trying to kill him. Um, Saul's son, Jonathan, is David's close friend, if not lover. And Jonathan keeps helping David even when his father is trying to kill him. And then eventually David marries into Saul's family, marries his daughter, and becomes his son-in-law. They are so closely linked together, yet Saul's bipolar rage keeps lashing out, trying to kill him. And so they chase each other across the whole country. For years, Saul hounds David, getting within a hair's breadth only for him to slip away. And then several times, David could easily kill Saul and end the whole thing, but he deliberately doesn't. And through all this, Saul continues going downhill and losing it. And then, finally, he reaches his breaking point. The prophet Samuel has died, and even though he hates him, Saul wants him back so that maybe he can remove this curse that he put on him when he revoked God's support. So even though he, even though he specifically drove out all the mediums from Israel, Saul sneaks off to the witch of Endor, a necromancer. And so after some convincing and arm twisting, she leads a seance and summons forth the ghost of Saul, excuse me, ghost of Samuel for Saul, who even in death is belligerent towards Saul. Um, He drives the final nail in his coffin and says, Saul will die in battle the next day, which happens. 
Saul is mortally wounded, and rather than being captured, he commits suicide. So through this whole ordeal, David and Saul are so deeply intertwined. At the end of the story, a messenger comes to David, celebrating that Saul has died. And David kills the messenger, literally, because he can't rejoice in the death of his enemy, which is macabre. But. And uh, Saul's last words to David are, Blessed are you, my son David. Ooh. Ooh. That's heartrending. That, that's tragic, right? So what the heck are we supposed to make of this story, of this tragedy? It reminds me of Macbeth, this slow slide into, into madness consumed by oneself and one's sense of fate. So what do we make of it? I mean, on one hand, it's, it's just kind of like what we make of any great story, right? I get the same types of things out of Poisonwood Bible or The Color Purple. You know, there's just something about a story taking you somewhere that can change you, even if not explicitly moral, right? But there are two other reflections we might keep in mind with this discussion. So it's interesting that this complex of a story is included in the Bible. Even other parts of the Bible, uh, these particular narratives get flattened out. Like, David is the paradigmatic, absolutely good king, right? Which doesn't sync up with him being super complex and messy and an adulterer and murderer and all this kind of stuff. And so there's something about the fact that these stories are included in the Bible. It's something about affirming that life isn't always nice and tidy, that God doesn't just work through the people who have everything together and are doing it right. God can be at work through complex, manipulative, good, bad, selfish, arrogant, compassionate human beings, meaning through all of us, in our messiness. It's actually possible that God might be at work in the world through us, even as mortal, finite, fallible souls. The other thing I find really helpful about this story is, is this meta plot. Uh, this, is this discussion about political systems. It's really easy to just to write off the history because it's way back when. But the Bible itself spends an inordinate amount of time trying to get it right and trying to describe exactly, sort out exactly what's going on. And so it gets us to this thought-provoking question. How do the different ways we structure our society instill within us deep messages? How are we affected by the ways we construct our societies? There's a famous phrase, the medium is the message. And so it's saying that the exact same words aren't the same if you send them via text message or radio wave. 
there's something about the medium itself that, that adds and changes how we understand communication. And the Bible is insisting the same type of thing about our social structures. It's not just a neutral difference between a tribal family system and a monarchy. It's not just two interchangeable options. Rather, in the very ways that we structure our world, we find embedded values and meanings and priorities and accommodations. And through this, the Bible reinforces the way you live matters. And not just you individually, but you as a community. And not just you as a community, but as the systems and the social structures that you set up. All of this feeds into how we live well as the people of God. So this week, may you seek out the complexities in life that doesn't fit in the nice, neat little boxes. May you find the richness and depth and complexity, and may you be open to grow precisely in those places that are the most ambiguous. May it be so.